Good morning, Mainstream. It's me today. You thought it was Carlos, you thought it might be Brad, but no. It's not too late to leave. Sorry for the false advertisement, but you are, you are stuck with me today. Rodney. Um, Rodney, if you watch any movies or TV shows, Rodney is never the character who's like, oh, the hero of the story. Rodney is the bully. Rodney is the dumb kid in the, in the movies. Um, so I, have, I feel like I have a lot to live up to uh, there, to make a change for the name Rodney in this world. But it's, it's going to be an uphill battle, I know. You know, the Rodney Kings, the Rodney Dangerfields. Um, I'll do my best <laughs> with the name Rodney. Now, I love my mom. My mom's in the room here. I, 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 uh, I love my, my name, Mom. Sorry. I, oh, boy, I got to be careful. I forgot. <laughs> get myself in trouble quick here. And let's see if I can get this to stick on my ear, too. That, that's the problem us Rodneys have, too, is we ears don't uh, interact well with microphones, I guess. Um, I'm glad you could all be here, and the master's students, um, both the university students and seminary students, it's finals week coming up, so I'm sure there are some of those who have finals this week, and uh, I know that's tough, uh, but for the rest of us who don't have finals this week, isn't it wonderful not to, oh, I tell you, you poor souls, I'm so glad I'm not you, <laughs> that really stinks to have finals. So, uh, yeah, I feel bad for you, but uh, I am sure glad I don't have it, and uh, I'm sure you are too. Well, today I want to talk about omniscience, and I gave Jerry a PowerPoint like at the last second, and we'll see if we can uh, get it working. Oh, look at that. Is he the man or what? Give, it, give me a hand right there. Oh, I get it. <laughs> I, I thought I'd pull that. It was a Rodney move. I thought I'd see if you're on your toes there. Uh, we're going to talk about the omniscience of God today. The omniscience of God. And um, as you know, God's, or you've probably seen it in theology books, omniscience is what they call an incommunicable attribute of God. A lot of God's, God's attributes sometimes are divided between communicable and incommunicable, meaning those that we can also have as humans and those that we can't because we are not God. Omniscience falls in the incommunicable uh, category. Love would be communicable. We are to love as God loved. We, we can do that. Sovereignty? No, uh, you're not going to have sovereignty. Um, omniscience is going to fall in that incommunicable category. So if you wanted to have all the knowledge for your finals or whatever this week, you're not going to have it, um, hopefully enough to help you pass the course. But wouldn't it be great to know everything? Wouldn't it be great to have all knowledge? Um, if you knew every detail in every course at the school that you were going to, what if you knew every detail of every course in any university around the world? Now that would be a lot of knowledge. What if you knew every detail in the libraries around the world, all the books that have ever been written? An amazing, amazing amount of knowledge that is in this world, found in our schools, in our universities, in our um, scientists, and, and many. But even if you had all of that knowledge, 
it would be very limited on what knowledge could be had. There is knowledge about every person in the world that is not recorded in books. There is knowledge about every thought that every person has. That certainly, praise the Lord, not recorded in books either. <laughs> but the amount of knowledge that is possible is staggering in this world. If you consider all this known knowledge and unknown knowledge together. And yet God knows all of this. Everything. Everything that's recorded, everything that's not recorded, God knows all of these things. And I want to start off by looking at a passage, Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. We're going to go to a lot of places this morning, but that's, uh, that's where we're going to start. Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. And let me read this to you. You can follow along. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. So look at verse four. He counts the number of stars. He gives name, names to all of them. Well, how many stars are there out there? there? They estimate that there's about in every galaxy about 100 billion stars. That's a lot of stars, 100 billion. But then they say there are likely at least a trillion galaxies. Some say 10 trillion galaxies. Well, if you take 100 billion stars in a trillion galaxies, you're looking at 100 sextillion stars. That's a lot of stars. Um, if you were to take all, if you were to take a dime for every star that there is, it would go up really high if you stacked them up. Um, <laughs> Really high. I, I didn't calculate it or anything, but I imagine it'd be really high because that's a big number. It's 10 with 23 zeros behind it. So that, you can just even write that out on your page. You can imagine that is a lot of stars. It says God knows all of them and he's named them all, which some believe means that he, he created them all. He's named them. He knows them all because God has done this. More than that, Look at verse 5. It says, his understanding is infinite. Infinite. Now, the word for infinite here literally means without number. And I believe it's in contrast to verse 4 when he's talking about the number of stars. As huge a number as that is, 10 to the 23, number of stars. God's understanding is without number. It is more than that. He is omniscient. What does omniscience mean? It means he's, his, his knowledge is not limited by scope. He knows it all perfectly and completely, every single detail. To say he's omniscient is to say his knowledge is not limited by observation. Not just things that are seen, but he knows every thought, motive, feeling, and desire that a person has had or will have. And to say God is omniscient is to say his knowledge is not limited by time. <clears throat> he knows the past, present, and future. And the knowledge never had to be gained by God. He's never not known it. Consider this, God's never learned anything. 
He's never had to learn anything because he's always known it in the past. I mean, that is the amazing God that we serve, that he, he has always known. He never discovers anything new. He's never surprised by anything because he knows the future as well as he knows the past. He never increases in knowledge. And the only time in scripture we see him questioning men is to draw out their response. When he asks men in the Bible, why did you do this? Or what are you doing? You know, Adam and Eve, where are you? Well, he knew where they were. It wasn't like they were really, really good at hiding. I mean, they were excellent. There was one garden and they found the perfect spot. Certainly God knew. He was drawing it out from them. So I want to talk about God's omniscience today, and we're only going to be able to touch on the subject. Um, certainly we can't plumb the depths of God's omniscience, but I do want to consider it for a while today because it is good for us to consider the attributes of God. That is a profitable thing for us because, as A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because our theology, and particularly our understanding of God, drives the decisions we make every day. It's because of what we believe is true is how we make decisions. And how we make decisions influences our life. Our life is marked by the decisions we make, what to do each day, what to say each day. And this all comes from what our theology is. So we must think on the theology of God. So today we're going to consider uh, two points, the evidence of God's omniscience and the implication, implications of God's omniscience. So the evidence of God's omniscience and the implications of God's omniscience. And along the way, I'm going to be uh, quoting a number of times from a writer named Stephen Charnock. And perhaps you're familiar with that name. He was an English Puritan in the 1600s. And he wrote what is, many believe, the, the seminal work on the attributes of God. It's called The Existence and Attributes of God. And if you've never perused that book, I would encourage you to do so. It is deep. It is a deep book talking about God and very beneficial to every one of us. And the good thing is it's free online. Uh, so long ago that it's a free PDF online, so you can find that. Existence and attributes of God. But let's look first at the evidence of God's omniscience. So let's see here. Probably I should turn this on. Watch how much better it'll work now. Oh, just kidding. We will. All right, Jerry. I See, giving you last minute, what am I doing wrong? It's, I'm, sure, I'm sure it's me. All right. Battery issue. This little lighter thing is going on. Oh, there it is. Okay, that's fine. And really, you know, if it doesn't work, it's not the end of the world. Everything, we're always so polished here, but you know what? It doesn't have to be right. <laughs> you know? It was never polished over in China. We'd always be last minute doing things, so it's all right. It's still truth. All right, God's omniscience. The first point I want to look at is creation demands it. So the evidence of God's omniscience, I'm going to give you three evidences. The first evidence is creation 
demands it. We know God is the one who created the universe and sustains it with his power. Genesis 1 and 2, describe how God created the world in just six days. In Revelation 4 verse 11, it says that God's worthy of praise because of his creation. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Now I know it's not the first time you have heard that God is creator of the world. At least I hope not. Um, but are we, do we marvel at that? Is that something we've heard so many times that now it's just common knowledge? Everything in this world, every planet and star, every plant, an amazing amount of plant life, and then you think of um, in the ocean, the coral and all that life, and then every animal and bird that's ever been made. The complexity, if you ever watch those nature shows, it's amazing at the variety. And God has made all of them with all their complexities. We consider the human body alone and the complexities of the human body. And man still can't fully understand and describe all the processes of the human body. A little closer? Let's see. Oh, look at that. Give it up for Jerry again. Look at that. Johnny on the spot. He's saving. He's going to make a good name out of Rodney yet by helping me. <laughs> so thank you. Creation demands it. The human body is amazing, all the cycles, um, everything going on, the different systems, whether it's the respiratory system, um, the pulmonary system, and other system stuff that is in the body that I don't know about, because I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I'm an engineer, not a doctor. <laughs> but the human body is amazing, an amazing thing that man cannot replicate, but God has designed it all, and without assistance from anyone else. He made us ex nihilo, right? He made the, the world and everything in it. He made man from the dust of the ground. But the, the world he made, not with a template, not of someone else's design, like, hey, that's a good idea. I'm going to incorporate that. He made them all himself without any help. Now, we know that when someone makes something, and the classic example is the watchmaker, that a watchmaker knows what he's going to design. But let's say iPhone, because who uses watches anymore? When an iPhone is built, there is a design to it. It doesn't randomly come together. It's not as someone just started putting pieces together and came up with an iPhone. There was design and there was knowledge that precedes the making of it, correct? So there had to be knowledge. God had to have the knowledge to be able to create everything. And he not only created it, he sustains it. And I mentioned there Colossians 1, 16 to 17, or on the slide there. And that reminds us, for by him all things were created both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and get this, in him all things hold together. God's holding everything together. Could he do this if he didn't know how they worked? If he didn't know every little thing, and how it operated, could he make it all continue to work? Could he sustain it? Of course not. To say that he, could, he has the power to do something without the knowledge of how to do it is nonsense. 
He must have the knowledge and able to have the power to do these things. And so we need to be amazed by this. God knows everything because he created and he sustains it. But let me step back and say this. If we say God knows every piece of knowledge in the world, known or unknown, everything that operates, sustaining it all, even still by saying that, his knowledge would be limited. Because there is a limited number of things in this world. Limited number of people, limited number of thoughts. The true infinity of God's knowledge is only seen in his perfect knowledge of himself. Because God is infinite. He knows himself perfectly. That is true infinity of knowledge. I mean, we, we think it'd be a lot to know every single star, every single thing. But that's still limited compared to what God knows. And we need to think deeply on how amazing our God is. And we'll get to some implications and how we should live about it. But first, that is a, one of the evidences of God's knowledge is his creation. Secondly, maybe even a stronger argument for the God's infinite knowledge is prophecies and promises in the scriptures. The scriptures are full about prophecies given by God about what will happen. Uh, many that are events that will happen. Consider Ephesians, I'm sorry, uh, Genesis 6.17. In Genesis 6, what happens in Genesis 6? You guys remember? Flood. That's the flood. Before the flood happened, God said that it would happen. He knew the future. He knew exactly what was going to happen, a flood. Now, how did he know a flood was going to happen? Well, he was going to cause the flood to happen. So he knew it. Think of Genesis 41. God, through Joseph, interpreted Pharaoh's dream. Said there would be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And was God correct in what the future held? Yes, he was. He knew the future. And he caused it to happen. And it's an amazing thing that God would know what will happen in nature, but it's not surprising since he controls all of nature. But consider this. There are certain things that are not supernatural events and seem contingent on the free will of man. Well, God knows about those things because he caused those things to happen. But what about the decisions I make? What about things that happen tomorrow that I'm going to decide what happens? Well, we see in Scripture that God knows these as well. Look at Genesis 15, 13. In Genesis 15, 13, we're not going to flip to all the examples I have, but let's go to one of them at least. Just to keep me honest, make sure I'm not making these up. And to check to make sure I wrote the reference down correctly. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Genesis 15, 13. So here we are way back in Genesis. God's speaking to Abraham about slavery for 400 years. Well, did this happen? Israel enslaved for 400 years? Yes, it did. By the country of Egypt, right? Now, the Pharaoh, he picked up Genesis 15, and he said, oh, you know what? i got to enslave these people for 400 years. God said this would happen. Well, of course not. He believed that was his own volition, that he was doing that. 
Yet God knew perfectly what was going to happen. And it seemed like man's in control, but man is not. God is in control and knows what will happen in the future. A couple other examples, Isaiah 6, 9. You don't have to turn to all of these. Isaiah 6, 9, God told Isaiah the people would not listen to his teaching. And of course, the people listening did not say, well, God said I wouldn't listen, so I'm not going to. Again, they thought it was their own volition. Yet God knows what will happen. Isaiah 44, 28, God prophesied through Isaiah that a king named Cyrus would allow Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And this prophecy was made 150 years before Cyrus was even born. Now, Cyrus' mom did not look to Scripture to name him correctly. And Cyrus did not look to God to release them. But God knows what will happen. And certainly, Jesus knew at the beginning of his ministry that Judas would betray him. In John 6, 70 and 71, Jesus knows Judas would betray him. Even the acts of man that we think are beyond God's knowledge because we haven't decided yet, God knows exactly what will happen. He is not limited by time. And we could look at prophecies of the ministry of John the Baptist, the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, the crucifixion of Christ on the cross, so many things prophesied because God knows the future as well as he knows the past. Psalm 139, verse 4. You could turn there. Psalm 139, verse 4. David recognizes the omniscience of God. And he writes, Even before there is a word in my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Before the word comes on the tongue, the future is not hidden from God's knowledge. And this is evident in the prophecies, also the promises. If God has made promises of the future, certainly he will bring those to pass. We can trust in that. Now, there are some open theists who say that God knows the past and the present and maybe future possibilities, but he doesn't know what the future will hold. But that is a heresy. God knows the future. God controls the future. He is not what they say, a God who takes risks. He does not have to take risks. He is sovereign, he is in control, and he knows what the future holds. And we see this in the prophecies and in his promises. But let me give you one more evidence of God's omniscience. And this is perhaps the most important. Uh, scripture openly declares it to be true. Scripture states that God is omniscient. Psalm 147.5, which we read in the beginning, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. The word for understanding refers more than just gathering data. It includes both knowledge and the ability to use that knowledge so that there's wisdom and understanding. And the psalmist writes, this is infinite. It's without number. God, in the set of all information of the world, God knows it all. Further, Scripture declares that God's knowledge extends to the hearts of men. Proverbs 15, 11. Says, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men? Saying, death and destruction 
Sheol and Abaddon are death and destruction or the grave and the dead that are in them. God knows those, but how much more? You see, there's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God knows that, what lies beyond the grave, surely he knows what is in your heart. He knows your every thought, your every desire, your every decision. Psalm 139, verses 1 to 4, which is a wonderful psalm talking about the attributes of God. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. It says, when I sit and when I rise, God knows. Well, why sitting and rising? Um, well, what that is, in Hebrew, it's a merism. It's saying, there's, you're either sitting or you're not sitting. That's the two options. It means everything. It's taking the extremes and saying everything in between. Everything God knows. He knows every single piece, every moment of your life. And when it says, you understand my thoughts from afar, verse 2, it's not an idea of distance, but in time. You know well before I think them. God knows all of it. There's nothing outside of his understanding. Creation demands God's omniscience. Prophecies and promises demonstrate it, and Scripture declares it. There is no doubt, there should be no doubt in any of our minds that God is omniscient. So what? Okay, great, I knew that. I walked in here, I could have signed off saying I believe in God's omniscience. Um, probably every one of you would have signed such a statement. What are the implications? What are the implications of God's omniscience? Because it's real easy for us to say one thing, that our theology is, is something, but then a lot of times we live very differently. And our lives prove our true theology. Your stated theology is not necessarily your true theology. You can say that God is trustworthy and then show by your life that you do not trust him. You could say God is sovereign and yet you're worried about something's gonna happen. What is your true theology, your lived out theology? And God's omniscience, which we would sign off as our stated theology, is that your lived theology? So I wanna look at a few different ways, implications of God's omniscience. And we need to evaluate ourselves. Is this our true theology? Do we believe this with our lives? So first, God's omniscience must drive you to worship him. God's omniscience must drive you to worship him. Romans 11, 33 to 36. Now you, you turn there because that's such a great passage if you have your Bibles or, you know, use your phones to go there. You can't flip there on your phones. What do you do? You search there, you uh, scroll there, something like that. Romans eleven thirty three to 36. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? 
Or who has first given to him that it might be repaid back to him? You know, rhetorical questions. There's nothing, obviously nothing. And he concludes, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. As Paul writes about God's omniscience, particularly in regards to justification, salvation, he can't help but break out in praise to God. And that should be our first response as we think about the greatness of our God and his omniscience. The first response should be worship toward God. Praise him because he deserves it. And I want to give a quote by Stephen Charnock. Here he writes, The praise of God is a decent thing. The excellency of God's nature deserves it, and the benefits of God's grace require it. The excellency of God's nature deserves it. He deserves our praise because of the excellency of his nature. He is praiseworthy. And more than that, we've received benefits of his grace. So they are required of us to be praising to him. And it is a great thing to know that God has great compassion and love. And he has limitless power to help us in any need. But if he had love, if he had this power but did not have omniscience, if he did not know what our issues were, if he did not know what was best, what good would be this power? What good would be this love if he did not know what was best for us? And God's attributes are not separate. They all work in harmony perfectly together. And his omniscience works with his love and his power and his compassion and his mercy to reach out, to to care for our needs in every way. And we need to praise him. So I encourage you, to think on God's omniscience this week and praise him for it. Spend time in prayer this week. Just thanking God for knowing what's going on because his excellencies deserve our praise. Well, next, another implication. God's omniscience must drive drive us to trust him. Because he's omniscient, we must trust him. And turn to Matthew 6, 31 to 33. And as you know, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Christ is speaking here about those who are worrying. And he writes in 6.31, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The cure for worry that is listed in this verse is remembering God's omniscience. Your father knows that you need these things. He knows your every need. There is nothing that you need that God is unaware of. And that, what should our response be to that? Trust. Trust in God, not worry. Worry is saying with our lives, 
Lord, I either think you don't have enough power, I don't think you have enough love, or I don't think you know what's going on in my life. We are in some way doubting God's character when we worry. And so our true theology is shown by how we live. He knows pain that you're going through that no one else knows. There might be struggles that you feel like no one understands. And maybe no human does. But God understands perfectly. And even better than you do. He understands you perfectly and he knows exactly what you need. And because he is a compassionate God and an all-powerful God, he can meet those needs. So we can go to him and we must go to him in prayer, lifting up our needs to him asking for him to intervene, to, to be in our lives. Now, there are those who may object at this point and say, wait a minute, you're saying prayer? If he's omniscient, why pray? Uh, doesn't that seem a little foolish? Hey, hey, God, just so to let you know, this is something I need today. Why do we pray if God is omniscient? But the answer is quite plain to that. We do not pray so that God can figure out what's going on. We do not pray so he can learn something new. We pray to acknowledge our dependence upon him. Prayer is a demonstration, a declaration of our dependence upon God. It's one thing for a child to know that their father would help them. It's quite another for that child to come to his dad and ask for help. And God wants us to demonstrate through our prayers to him, that we need him. So let me give another quote by Stephen Charnock. He says, Prayer was not appointed for God's information, as if he were ignorant, but for the expression of our desires. Not to furnish him with the knowledge of what we want, but to manifest to him by some rational sign convenient to our nature, our sense of that want which he knows by himself. So that prayer is not designed to acquaint God with our wants, but to express the desire of a remedy of our wants. God knows what we need, but he wants us as children to come to him and to show and demonstrate, God, I believe that you can help me and I believe that you love me. So we must go to prayer. And go to the God that knows our needs, but wants us to come to him as a father and express those to him. So God's omniscience should drive you to worship him. It should drive you to trust him. Third, God's omniscience must drive you to sincerity. God's omniscience does not only give us the great comfort of these first two implications, it also results in great conviction. God's omniscience must remind us that God will see through any hypocrisy in your life. Our pastor, John MacArthur, wrote this. No one should think he can play games with an all-knowing God. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. God knows all the facts. His judgment will be just and accurate because it will be according to truth. His perception is never distorted. We cannot play games with God. Consider Isaiah 29, 13. 
Let me turn there real quickly. Isaiah 29, 13. Then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote, 14. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise will perish and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. They honored God with their lips, but their heart was far from him. That was true of the Israelites. It was true of the Pharisees in the day of Christ. Jesus quoted these same words from Isaiah, didn't he? When the Pharisees said all the right words, but God knew their hearts. The question is, could Jesus say the same about any of us? It's easy to come. Frankly, it's easy to come on a Sunday morning to sing the hymns, to say the nice things to everybody. But God knows our hearts. God's omniscience, in some ways, is a convicting, if not a scary thing. If you are not genuine before him, if you are not sincere, if you have any hypocrisy in your heart, God's omniscience is a scary thing. So do not think so little of God by pretending with an external religion. Always be sincere from the heart. And again, a quote from Stephen Charnock on this point. This is an unworthy conceit of God to fancy we can satisfy for inward sins and avert approaching judgments by external offerings, by a loud voice with a false heart, as if God, like children, would be pleased with the glittering of an empty shell. Do we treat God as a child and say, oh, look at my, look what I'm doing, I'm singing, I'm praising, and doing these Christian things as if God were so foolish that he didn't understand your heart? God sees past that. He is not a little child to be fooled by outward appearances. We must be sincere. If you come to church and you realize you are harboring sin, you need to go repent of that. Confess that sin. What did Jesus say? If you're coming to bring an offering at the altar and your brother has something against you, you take care of that. Do not think we are, we, we cannot think we're fooling God by external appearances. It must drive us to sincerity before God. Well, next, God's omniscience must drive us to Repentance. Proverbs 5.21 For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he watches all his paths. If you've not spent much time in Proverbs, I encourage you to do so. This verse is in the context of warning about sexual sin. And here he provides the greatest incentive against sexual sin. God is watching and he knows everything. God is always watching. And so we need to pay close attention to everything that we think and everything that we do. And may I suggest everything that we look at as well, whether that's on the internet 
television, movies, whatever that is, God knows every single web page you've been to. Um, he doesn't have to look in your history. Um, he is aware. Would we look at all the same things or watch all the same movies if a, if a small child was standing next to us? Like, oh, I'm a little nervous to, to, to look at that if, you know, a child is there because it's, you know, inappropriate for kids. But yet God is watching it. Do we think less of God than a small child that we would do something? Or do we pretend that God doesn't know what we're looking at? We, by our secret sins, called secret sins, if they're a secret, we practically deny God's omniscience. If we hold on to a secret sin, we are saying, I don't believe you really know this, God. And again, Stephen Charnock writes, when we give the reins to the motions of our hearts and suffer them to run at random without curb, it is an evidence we are not concerned for their falling under the notice of the eye of God. And it argues a very weak belief of this perfection or scarce any belief at all. Again, what is your true theology? Is your state of theology the same as your life theology? Do we live as if God knows every single thing? And I encourage some young men to, you know, to put a verse like this. Um, God watches all your paths. Put that on your computer, your uh, top of your monitor or something, if you need that reminder. But let me give you one more implication of God's omniscience. There's things of praise and things of warning. This is, we'll end with something of thankfulness. God's omniscience must drive you to thankfulness. Consider these two verses. Psalm 90, verse 8. Psalm 90, verse 8. This Moses writes, You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. God knows every sin, every secret sin, sins that we're not even aware of, in our own hearts, God knows those, every single one. And yet, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, despite this knowledge of every single sin, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your skins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. It is certainly scary to know that God is aware of every sin. Every sin that we're aware of ourselves in our hearts, and even ones that we are not aware of. But if you have been forgiven by God, and you stand here today as a child of God, or sit here today, as a child of God, every one of those has been forgiven. God knew the darkness of your sin. And not only the past sins, he knew what sins you would commit and are still going to commit. And he has given you forgiveness in Jesus Christ. When we forgive another person, that's um, a difficult thing to do often. And sometimes later we find out something else they did against us that we didn't realize at the time. Everything, oh, I said I forgave him, but I didn't realize all they had done. God knew everything you had done. 
the blackness of it, and what you would continue to do. And he forgave it all. To understand that God's forgiveness extends that far to every known and unknown sin of ours should drive us to thankfulness. What a God that has forgiven us all of those. Charnock writes, as God punishes men for sin according to his knowledge of them, which is greater than the knowledge their own consciences have of them, so he pardons according to his knowledge. He pardons not only according to our knowledge, but according to his own. And if you do not know Christ and do not know his forgiveness, he is willing to forgive if you submit to him, if you repent, and he knows the blackness of your sin. And I don't know if there's anyone in here who has not come to the knowledge of Christ, but if there is, I beg you to come to God who can forgive even with the most horrible things that you have sinned in your thoughts or deeds. He has offered His Son and Christ died for those with the knowledge of those, full knowledge, and has given full forgiveness for those sins. So God is omniscient. I think it's pretty clear we've shown why He is, some evidences for it. And there are implications of that. It's a source of conviction and a source of comfort. We need to praise him for his omniscience. Trust him because he knows our every pain and our every need. We must be sincere before God because our hypocrisy is foolishness before him. We should repent of any secret sin. And certainly we should thank God that despite knowing the details of our hearts, he still loves us. What a great God we serve. And I remind you of this verse in Proverbs. The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. What a source of conviction to stay away from sin, but what a source of joy and comforting that he knows us and loves us despite all that he knows. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in prayer. Lord, you know um, already what we're going to pray, even now. You know our hearts and our minds, whether they're in tune with this, what we're praying or whether they're somewhere else. And yet, God, we come to you in prayer because we know we need you. And we are dependent upon you. And we trust you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand you more fully, um, to recognize your greatness better, and live like we believe it. God, thank you that you know our needs, and as we go out from here today, you know the needs of every person here. Just pray that each one of us would trust you for those needs and remain dependent upon you for them. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.